Open your Bibles, please, to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. We're going to be back again in this chapter. We are now going to look at the second of two verses that make up a very short two-part series in Romans chapter 8, verses 28 and 29. The reason why we broke this up into two sermons is because really there is enough material here to warrant it, but also because I wanted to show you two separate yet related principles that are are outlined for us here in this monumental chapter of the New Testament. The first one was the purpose, the purpose of redemption. Why? Why does God reveal to us that he would send his son in order to rescue lost humanity? Why would he do that? What is the, the purpose of redemption? And then the second question, the one that we want to answer today is, what is the process of redemption? How does that work? The purpose of redemption and the process of redemption today, that process of redemption. And so just so that we have some context, go ahead and look down at Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 29, and we're going to read 29 and 30. This is God's word. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. He also glorified. The word glorified is the word that I would like to have echo through your mind over the next several moments as we study this passage together. What does it mean to be glorified? What does it mean for the ultimate purpose of our election to be glorification? What does it mean for us to have been foreknown and predestined and called and justified and promised to be made joint heirs with Christ to enjoy the riches of his glory forever in a new heavens and a new earth and a resurrected body with his very presence dwelling among us forever and in that be glorified? What does that mean? What what, what am I anchoring my hope to? What what am I defining my salvation as? What am I thinking I have been rescued, not only from, but rescued to and rescued for? Is it possible that I am not thinking too much of what awaits me in the future, but too little? That my obsession and fixation with this world and this stuff and this life, and this health, and this body, and this church, and this marriage, and this mortgage, and this savings account is so utterly and completely deceptive that it is taking my mind away from the ultimate promise that God has given me in the gospel, and that is glorification in the future. That's the question that we want to ask this morning. And so if anything, what I would like to do is maybe dull the shine of everything that we receive immediately as a consequence of our salvation, that we might focus our attention on what's going to happen when, as Paul says, we will be saved. You do remember that. He says you have been saved, you are being saved, and you will be saved. And the problem is we as believers get locked in our concept of time, and we talk increasingly about what he will do when it's something he has already done, And what he has done when it is something that he is still doing. 
And so this morning, we're going to actually, I'm going to make an effort to, to, to help reconstruct our understanding of that so that we come away from here with just a proper evaluation of our present situation before the Lord, but even more importantly, a proper estimation of what awaits for us in the next. Now, I know that many of you recently were perhaps focused in on the news of the death of Prince Philip. This is the husband of the Queen, Queen Elizabeth, who, as a still citizen of Canada, I am subject to. And, 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 and it, it made, of course, international headlines because both she and her husband had served for so long in this role, and she continues to serve in that role well into her 90s. And of course, there's not a conversation about, about his death without a conversation about her impending death, without a conversation about the situation of her eldest son, Prince Charles, who, as described by one person recently, has spent his whole life waiting for his mother to die in order that he can have some significance. And the notion that the one thing you can say about this gentlemen, is that if there's something he is waiting for, it is his coronation. Now, this is what happened back in 1953, I believe it was, with his mother, and, and now he is waiting for this for himself. He is, he is waiting for that day of coronation. He is waiting for the day when he is going to realize his, his ultimate role, his ultimate title, his ultimate inheritance, his ultimate glory. Why is it that kings dress differently from common people? It's because there's something about them that is meant to set them apart in their glory. In fact, some kings work harder at it than others in order to impress you by their glory. They want you to be impressed by them. They want to stand out. They want to be different. They want you to be in awe of them. What does it mean for somebody to await the day when he will receive his coronation, receive his glory? What sort of anticipation must that be? What level of dissatisfaction might exist now? No matter how great it is now, no matter how much wealth there is, no matter how much authority there might be, no matter how much glory there might be now, it is nothing compared to the glory that will be. Why are people talking about him and saying, oh, for the day when he finally receives the crown? Because in the crown is the glory. Well, if we can understand that about such a microscopically insignificant situation as who happens to be the head of the royal family in England, imagine how much more we ought to consider it for the case of every single person who is in Christ, knowing that one day they will be crowned with the glory that belongs to their risen Savior, Jesus Christ, and enjoy that forever. Amen? Oh, that we had that perspective. Oh, we would say, I would never give up my eternal glory in heaven to condescend in order to be a king on earth. Rather to be a peasant awaiting my glorification in eternity than a king on earth having only what earth can provide. And so when, when Paul addresses the Roman believers... And he carries on the argument that he began in Romans 8, 28, that all things are going to work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. 
And then he defines that purpose as ultimately making you a son adopted into the family of God to enjoy the riches of his inheritance forever. And then furthermore, reminding you that those whom he has foreknown, he has also called. And if you've been called, it begins an unalterable, irresistible, irrevocable, unchangeable chain of events that are as good as certainly done and described in the past tense that if you have been called by him, that you will be glorified. You are already glorified. So, so that's the, the next step in his argument. And so he's going to describe the process. A process already done in the eyes of God, but a process nevertheless that we have to understand. A process that he wants us to be encouraged by. And so it begins here in Romans 8 verse 30. This is about glorification. This is about the glorification of the elect. We saw last week the purpose of redemption, that they would be sons and daughters of God, but we also understand now the process of the redemption. So this morning I want to ask three questions and give two points of application. That's our outline for this morning. There's going to be three questions, which I'll attempt to answer, and then two points of application that I hope will be an encouragement to you. Question number one, who will be glorified? Who will be glorified? When we look at this process here in in, in Romans 8.30, we ask the question, okay, to whom does this apply? Who is the whosoever? Who is the whom? What are we talking about? We're talking about, again, believers, The ones who have been foreknown, the ones who have been predestined, the ones who have been called, the ones who have been justified. And I want you to see something very interesting here in the way that Paul sets up his argument. He noticed, I want you to notice that he says all of these things in the past tense. It's the aorist tense in the original. Simple past tense. Past event. Done in the eyes of God. Over and done with. Guaranteed. Absolutely assured to happen. That in this order of salvation, that when he begins it, he will finish it. That whatever he begins, he will end. Whatever he starts in your life, he will perfect in your life. And if he, before the foundation of the world, before anything began, before you were even born, determined that he would set his electing love upon you and save you, then there is absolutely nothing that can be done to stop that from coming to completion. And therefore, he describes it all in the past tense. You have been foreknown, predestined, called, justified. Now, I want you to notice there's no conditional work here on your part. Every one of those links in the chain are his work. He does the foreknowing, doesn't he? He does the calling. He does the predestination. He does the justifying. We know from other texts of Scripture, he is doing the sanctifying as well, and he also did the glorifying. That every single step along the way, the very foundation for your assurance and for your salvation is absolutely nothing that you have done or contributed to the process. It is what he has done in you. And as we know, what he does in you results in certain responses, responses of faith, responses of belief, responses of repentance, responses of obedience. But beloved, don't be confused into thinking that those are what you generate and contribute, and then he generates the rest. It's not a joint effort. It's not a cooperative effort. It isn't something where you give some and he gives some. You don't meet him halfway. In fact, the very fundamental doctrines of the Reformation lay this out for us in crystal clear terms that we all know so well. 
I said last week that the first five that form the basis for the foundation of what we believe are the solas of the Reformation. Scripture alone is our rule and authority. We don't listen to what popes and priests say. We only care what God has said in his word, in the infallible scriptures, in their verbal and plenary inspiration. We also believe in Christ alone, that it is only his sacrifice that saves us. It is only his work on the cross. It is nothing that we, we do. We don't bring anything to the table. We don't offer anything to complete his sacrifice. It is also faith alone. It is only through faith in him that we are able to obtain that salvation. It is only through grace alone. You see, he extended it to us. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were in open and hostile rebellion against him, he came in and circumvented our natural hostility and animosity, and he rescued us by grace alone and all to the glory of God alone. Scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, to the glory of God alone. And now when we talk about that process of redemption, you see, Paul says there's even more to it than that. You know, the reformers also very early on had to fight against those who were coming in to corrupt the very reformation they were trying to form. And they had to respond by nailing down five truths once and for all. The first one is that man is totally depraved. That mankind is not able to say that he is neutral. That he just needs to be persuaded of what is true and right and he will then of his own volition choose that. No, the reality is only when God overpowers us will we believe. We don't want to believe. We are absolutely dead, Scripture says, in our trespasses and sins. The second point was that God chooses us unconditionally. He doesn't fast forward the tape of the universe and then figure out what we would do and that we would just choose of our own free will to believe in him so he in turn elects us ahead of time. No, he chose us before the foundation of the world. He unconditionally chose those whom he chose. The third point is that when he sent his son to die, he died for his sheep. He died for those whom he had chosen. Not one of them is going to escape. Not one of them is going to be lost Furthermore, when he sets his spirit upon us to give us the grace to believe, it cannot be resisted. It cannot be resisted. Oh, it can be um, fought against in a sense. It, it, it could be refused for a while, but no, no, no. If the Lord sees fit to save, as that old poem, The Hound of Heaven says, he will chase you down until that grace is made evident in your life and you repent of your sins and you do believe and you do embrace him as your savior. And then finally, fifthly, the saints once saved can never be lost. Once in his hand, in his grip, there is nothing that can take you out of his hand. There is no satanic ploy. There is no deception. Once and for all, saved and always saved. A council of men years ago that was in our church for a while and he said, you know, I don't believe in that doctrine and after we began to talk about it, he realized that there was really no defense for the doctrine that says you can lose your salvation. So he settled on a doctrine that says, well, I might not be able to lose my salvation, but I can choose to unsave myself. No one can snatch me out of God's hand, but I can crawl away. I said, well, that's creative and absurd. There is nothing that can be done to separate us from his love. So Christ alone. Faith alone, grace alone, scriptures alone, to the glory of God alone. We are totally depraved and we need him to rescue us. 
He chooses us because of his own free will, not ours. He sends a son that everyone whom he has set apart for salvation will know the full redemption. He also ensures that those whom he calls will respond, and when they do, they can never be lost. That's the foundation of everything in Romans 8.30. That's the who. Question number two, what happens at glorification? What happens at glorification? I'm going to argue three things happen at glorification. Uh, There is a perfection that happens, there's a resurrection that happens, and there's an inheritance that happens. All right, so if you're taking notes, question number two, what happens at glorification? Three things, perfection, resurrection, and inheritance. Let's start with perfection. There is a spiritual perfecting that happens when we are glorified. Remember, the doctrine of election can be looked at from two different perspectives. One is what did it rescue me from, and the other is what did it rescue me to. Are we clear? What did it rescue me from, and what did it rescue me to? So the doctrine of election, in terms of what did it rescue me from, that's what all of Romans 9 is for. And we're going to get there eventually. But this is election from the standpoint of what did it rescue me and save me to? What has it guaranteed for me? What are the rewards of this election? That's what we're going to study here. And number one, it's perfection. Now this is really in a spiritual sense. Look over at 2 Corinthians chapter 3, and I am going to ask you this morning to turn in your Bibles to a few places. Uh, You know I don't tend to do that a lot. I don't want you to be distracted, flipping around, but I I do want you to let your eyes settle on some of these verses. Mark them down and then read them again later for your own benefit. Very important, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and beginning in verse 18, we read this, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image for the degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the spirit. And do you see what he's saying there that you are being transformed into the same image of the glory of the Lord from one glory to another. You see there's already a certain glory that you have received in the sense that you now know for certain that you have been rescued from the domain of darkness, but there is a glory to which you have been called. A glory like his glory. The glory of being conformed to the image of his son. Remember again, we talked about that in Romans 8. Why are we, why are we saved? To be conformed to the glory of his son. And so this perfection isn't going to be attained here on earth. It's a perfection that's going to be attained once and for all in glory. Look over now at chapter 4, same same book in 2 Corinthians, just chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. I think we read this last week. It's an amazing verse. We read this. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comprehension. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. He says, don't you understand that this glory to which you are called is a glory that is eternal. It's in the world of the things that cannot be seen, and so we look to what can't be seen. I I think it's intentionally difficult in the language because it seems 
Like you can't do that. How can we look to something that is unseen? Well, we're not looking at it with our eyes. We're looking to it in hope, in faith, that you're going to see it. Instead of the transient things that are on earth, we look at the eternal things. And what is it that provokes us to consider eternal things? Ask yourself the question. What does Paul use? What is the practical example that should direct your eyes to the eternal things and not the transient? He says, getting old. Well, thank you, Paul. He says, when you feel like you're getting old, that should remind you that not only are you transient, but all the things in your life in this world are transient too. A couple of weeks ago, I was with several pastors that I gather with every year. In fact, one of them used to pastor some of you who are now here uh, with us. And this one gentleman used to be a pastor in Washington, D.C., and myself, we were talking between the sessions, and uh, we had both come to the same realization uh, that over the last several years, something had happened in the group. And what had happened in the group is that there weren't as many older pastors. There weren't as many old guys in the group. And, And we were talking about this and sort of wondering how we might be able to solve that problem. And then it dawned on us that we had grown accustomed to being the young guys in the group, and we were no longer the young guys. And, and, and at one point, I was actually referred to by, by this um, hideous term for which I immediately rebuked the young man. He actually turned to me and said, well, I think it would be good to hear from one of the older guys. <laughs> and I'm looking around trying to find out who he's, who he's talking. I said, I'm not an older guy. I'm the young guy. But I look at the other young guys who are the same age, and I go, man, you're really getting old. You know, this body's it's fading, right? It's falling apart. It's, 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 it's wearing away. What do we do when we start thinking about those things? Do, do, do we try to cling to it? Do we say, oh, I wish we could go back to the time when we were younger? No, I think what Paul says is when that happens, you direct your eyes to what is eternal and is never going to change. And isn't it a wonderful thought that as good as this body is or as good as it's ever been, it's never going to be anything like it will be when it's glorified. Amen? You're going to have a glorified body. You have a glorified body. And he says that's what we look to. Perfection in the spiritual sense leads us to the reminder of the second point, and that is the resurrection when we will be perfected in the physical sense. We will be perfected. You see, this glorification, the question is, what happens? Not only are you perfected in the spiritual sense, but there is also a resurrection Chapter 8 and verse 23, back in Romans, you can flip back over there. Romans 8 and verse 23, and it says, Not only the creation groans, but we ourselves who have been the first fruits of the Spirit, groaning inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies. The redemption of our bodies. Same principle in Philippians 3, 20 and 21. Same principle in 1 Corinthians 15, 42 and 43. There is a glorification that is coming, and that glorification is not only spiritual, but it is physical in the resurrection. You know, the opposite of that would be to simply leave our bodies behind and go off into the spiritual realms. But God says, no, there's a plan for that body of yours. It goes into the ground, your spirit comes to me, but there is a day when they are resurrected and reunited. Uh, There's this wonderful statement that is made by Thomas Watson in his book, Body of Divinity. 
And, and had I thought about it before now, I would have brought it so I could read it and quote it and do justice to it. But the general gist of it is that he sort of imagines what it's going to be like when our souls and our bodies are reunited again at the resurrection. And he essentially personifies the soul and the soul begins to speak and the soul sees the new body and the soul talks to the body and the soul says, oh body, it's so great to see you again. Remember the good times we had together. Remember what it was like to go through growing up together and affliction together and even death together. The difference is I left you behind. I got to go to be with Jesus. But wow, now we're together again and you've been resurrected and perfected. And oh, I can't wait to go back inside of you and dwell in you as an embodied person again. Well, that's the notion here that resurrection is very physical and it's very much a part of your glorification. Please don't assume that glorification is only spiritual. Now, one of the places where we can go to be reminded of these things is some of the very um, simple and yet profound teaching tools that were used, especially around the time of when the Westminster Confession of Faith was written. And um, if I have it with me here, I'll read it to you. And if I don't, I'll have to get it later. Um, yeah, I don't have it here with me, so I'll pass on that plan. But anyway, what I was going to do is I was going to read to you a couple of the questions and answers from the Westminster Shorter Catechism, which so clearly teach the young people in the church that we ought not to view our salvation purely as something that rescues us from the sins and consequences of sin in this life, but something that is an ultimately glorifying reality at the resurrection. You see, children were trained in years gone by to understand doctrine through these catechisms, through questions and answers, and it meant to anchor your thoughts in what is true. And I say to you young people who are here today, it's important for you to learn these truths. And I say to parents, that's a wonderful place to start if you don't know what to do. Take your young children through some of these catechisms. What they do is they very simply and, and succinctly explain doctrine in such a way that they can remember it. And, 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 and you have a window of opportunity, especially when they're younger, uh, to be able to go through these together with them. And by the way, you might find that you learn a lot along the way. Because I think many of us have, unfortunately, been in churches where much of that wasn't taught. Much of that is even new to us as parents. But apart from the perfection spiritually and the resurrection physically, there's also an inheritance temporally. Again, we're still on point number two, what happens at the glorification, and that is there is an inheritance, and that is a temporal inheritance. It is a real inheritance, a physical inheritance. Romans chapter 8, verse 17 told us, told us that, that, that this inheritance is going to be something physical. Glorification then makes us realize the, the extent of that inheritance. We're going to receive everything the way that Christ receives it. It's his inheritance, ultimately. He is the one who, who is a part of the, a family of infinite resources, and he then shares it with those who have been adopted into that family. And that is what happens at glorification. Question number three, why is it necessary? Why is it necessary? It's necessary because the process of uh, redemption, as described here in Romans 8.30, fulfills the promise of the new covenant. This is very important. It fulfills the promise of the new covenant. Jesus said that the old covenant was not sufficient to truly accomplish what could only be accomplished in him. 
that the old covenant and the sacrificial system pointed to the ultimate perfect sacrifice of Christ himself. And so what he says is that the new covenant is the promise from Jeremiah 31 that God himself would write the law of God in your heart and he would then enable you to obey his commands, to obey him and follow him. That he would give you that heart of flesh. He would indwell you with his spirit. He would empower you to obey. And all of the sacrificial system and the ceremonial laws of the old covenant pointed to and were fulfilled in Christ. And then Christ tells us how to interpret and understand the moral law of God even more fully. Now, why is that important? It's important because Jesus said, there's a new covenant in my blood. He did that during the Last Supper in order to remind the disciples that God had not completely done away with the Old Testament. He had not completely thrown away the law. He had not completely abandoned every sort of moral obligation that he had placed upon his people. No, no. Otherwise, you wouldn't need your Old Testament or you would treat it as nothing but a compiled list of great sermon illustrations to reinforce what you're saying from the New Testament. No, the Old Testament is meant to be that chronological, historical record of the unfolding of redemptive history from creation through the fall, through redemption and ultimate restoration, promised in the Old Testament, foreshadowing the coming of Christ, then fulfilled in him, but then he takes that law, fulfilling it, and then applying it in the New Testament and in the New Covenant context for us. That's why we still pray through the Ten Commandments. That's why we are still not to have any other God but God. That's why we are still not to have any idols that would distract us from worshiping him. That's why we don't use his name casually and carelessly. And that is why we see in Christ the Sabbath rest. That's why we still honor our father and mother. That is why we do not murder or Jesus said even hate. We do not commit adultery, Jesus said, or even lust. We do not steal, Jesus said, or even wish we had something that doesn't belong to us. We do not align ourselves with those who are bearing false witness against another one that he might be indicted. And we certainly don't fall into the temptation to covet all the time. Why is glorification necessary? Glorification is necessary because all of the things that I just mentioned remain the moral law of God and we are scraping along in this sanctifying life to obey with his power, but one day we'll do so perfectly. That's the hope we have. It is spiritual, it is physical, it is a literal inheritance, and it is necessary to fulfill the new covenant promise that Christ has made. Now, you might say to me, well, how do I know for sure I have to do that? Well, let me very briefly do this for you, and then we'll move on. Go to Hebrews chapter 8. I just want to give you context for this. Hebrews chapter 8. And, and again, I, I confess, I'm, I'm barely scratching the surface on that topic. It's a huge topic. And I know it's one that warrants much more attention, but I just wanted for this particular morning to make sure you were reminded of it. But go over to Romans chapter eight, uh, Hebrews chapter 8. We'll see kind of a context for this. Hebrews 8, verses 6 and 7. But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is as much more excellent than the old as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. For if that first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no occasion to look for a second. If that old covenant 
had been sufficient, there would be no reason to look for another. Why do we look to Christ? Because he came to fulfill a covenant that was better. Not written on tablets of stone, but written in your heart. Hebrews 12, 12 to 17, since we're already in the book anyway. Hebrews 12, 12 to 17. Hear this promise. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, and by it many become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward... When he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. You see, the driving force behind the warning of the writer of Hebrews is that while it is still today, and you can still hear this message and respond to it and receive it, this is when you repent and believe. And as you do, the Spirit of God writes this law on your heart. So, Glorification is the proof of our election. Why is it necessary? Simply stated, it is the proof of our election. So those are our three questions this morning. Let me give you two applications. Two applications from this. Number one, and this is going to try to go back to just understanding the truth of everything that we've been studying this morning. Number one, if we understand this, if we understand what it means to be called and justified and glorified, if we understand this, then we are going to think true thoughts about God. If you understand this, you're going to think true thoughts about God. And here's, here's the true thought about God that I want to take away from the fact that those whom he called, he also predestined, and those whom he predestined, he also glorified. God the Father planned it. God the Son purchased it. And God the Holy Spirit provided it. God the Father planned it. God the Son purchased it. God the Holy Spirit provided it. God the Father, before the foundation of the world, is said to be the agent of this election. He is the one, obviously in, in, in complete agreement with the Trinity, but he is the one who is said to have chosen us. Plans it. Plans all of your life and all of redemptive history. The Son purchased it, sent as a man to die for men, but living that holy life in perfect harmony with God's will and law so that his natural inherent righteousness as God and his active righteousness as he obeyed the law in life perfectly can be applied to you in exchange for your sin being applied to him. He purchased it. And then thirdly, the Holy Spirit provides it. How? By the Spirit awakening your heart to believe the gospel. The Spirit gives life, the scripture says. So if you think rightly about Romans 8.30, you're going to think rightly about God. Number two, second application, you're going to think true thoughts about yourself. True thoughts about yourself. How do we do that? Well, there's kind of a five-point way that I remind myself of this, and all these 
words start with C, and if you find that helpful, great. If you don't, just bear with me. It'll be over soon. All right? Number one, I'm chosen. I'm chosen. I remind myself from the very beginning that I have been chosen by God. To think rightly about myself, that I'm a, a chosen one of God. We're called that several points in the New Testament. Number two, I'm called. Not only chosen, but I'm called. He's called me out of darkness into light. He has called me in to the kingdom of his son. He's called me out of sin and rebellion to lay down my arms and to embrace his glorious gospel. Number three, I'm converted. I'm converted. I like that term even better than saved sometimes because saved is definitely something that he has done for me. I am saved, but, but really his active work in me converts me, changes me. I've been chosen, I've been called, I've been converted, I've been clothed. Number four, I've been clothed. Clothed in the righteousness of Christ. If there's one thing uh, that is more, most consistently encouraging for me in my Christian walk, it is that every day I can remind myself that I'm clothed in the righteousness of Christ and that his love for me is not going to change today based on how externally good I am. That I'm not going to make him love me more if I have a good day. It is not going to be like a day trader who says, oh, I guess we're up today. Oh, we're down today. It's not like God is going to determine blessings he pours out upon me primarily based on how well I've done. That his love for me is stable and that his view of me as holy is not based on my work, but on the work of his son. I'm clothed, clothed in his righteousness. And the last one is conformed. Not only am I chosen and called and converted and clothed, but I'm conformed. I am being conformed to the image of his son, and I'm going to be conformed ultimately into what is perfect spiritually and physically at the resurrection. It's amazing, isn't it? That he himself has sovereignly ordained that all these things would happen for you purely because of his grace, purely a manifestation of his love, and none of it will change as he preserves you faithful until the end when he then rewards you for righteousness that you never earned, gives you a share in an inheritance that was never intended for you, but for his son, but he makes you part of it. And then promises for eternity to be with you as you enjoy him forever. That's what it means to be called. That's what it means to be justified. That's what it means to be glorified. And it is certain. And I hope it's an encouragement to you this morning. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this truth. For the way that you, over these last couple of weeks, have just allowed us to plumb the depths of these words given to us just in succession and seems so simple on the surface. Maybe hard to understand why it would take us very long at all to explain it. But what we have seen here, Father, is that below the surface of a simple explanation of these terms, as valuable as that would be, is the fact that when you pick up one of them, you find them attached to everything else that you reveal to us. And as we pull each of those threads, we just see how interwoven 
your foreknowledge is with your predestination of us, with your calling of us, with your justifying of us through the shed blood of Christ and with your glorifying of us based on nothing that we have done and certainly don't deserve. We say with the hymn writer, come ye sinner, poor and needy, weak and weary, all that is required of you is your knowledge that you need him. May that be the attitude of the hearts of each and every one of us today. If there be anyone who has not put their faith in you, we pray that your work of grace would be upon them today and you would draw them to yourself. Overcome their resistance, overcome their shame and guilt and their doubt. Help them to realize that all of those things serve a good purpose, a good purpose in reminding them that nothing that you offer is deserved, but everything you offer is free, and you will back every promise with all of the glory of the riches of heaven and the very word of God himself that can never change. We pray these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.